This is the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, episode 34. the Top Agents Playbook Podcast, your source for the very best tools, tips and ideas used by real estate's top performers. Now here's your host, Ray Wood. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I'd firstly like to thank my sponsors, Locked On, who are great supporters of the show. Uh, as you know, I'm a member of the company, so uh, it's a little bit incestuous, but uh, I really love the support that I get from the guys and the team. I have had a sneak look again at the forthcoming new version for Locked On, and it is a thing of beauty. It's going to be a new price, but you can get it at the old price if you jump in now uh, and lock in and get your Uh, discount for life and you can do that by going to the show notes clicking resources finding the locked on link and uh, getting in and doing it and seriously if you are not getting value from your current software your current real estate crm i don't care what it is if you're not getting value uh, and it's not working for you it's clunky and you don't enjoy it you need to get yourself locked on because the best agents are using locked on and the best agents are using real estate's best software so i'm suggesting you join them jump in and do it. Like I said, get a discount for life. I would argue, and this is the feedback that we get from our users, uh, that the support they get from Luke and the team uh, is second to none. So make sure you check it out. My one-on-one personal coaching is just starting to take off. And if you'd like to get involved with that, please email today and let me know. Some of the things I'm getting into with my coaching clients include setting up a regular blog and a dynamic web presence, super important at the moment. Uh, customizing direct mail and letter drop flyers to attract fresh listing leads, reaching out and connecting with former clients, using social media to grow their personal brand, and a whole heap of other stuff that we're getting into as well. We speak for an hour every other week, so every two weeks we have an hour session, and we get a real focus going on the dollar productive tasks required to reach the goals we've set. Okay, it's time for our interview. Gary Nessner is a former FBI agent with a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. A significant focus of his career was directed towards investigating Middle East hijackings in which American citizens were victimized. He was an FBI negotiator for 23 years and spent the last 10 years as the chief negotiator for the Bureau. He retired as the chief of the FBI's crisis negotiation unit called the Critical Incident Response Group, or CIRG as we call it. Now, if you think you're having a tough day every now and then, take a listen to what Gary did. As a negotiator with the FBI, he was heavily involved in numerous hostage, barricade and suicide incidents. He covered prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, think Waco, Texas, 1993, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings and over 120 kidnapping cases. Wow, that's uh, quite the resume. There are some great books on negotiating, but I think Gary's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Negotiator, is the best because the vitally important negotiating strategies are showcased in the stories 
around his various negotiating experiences with the FBI. In fact, if you go to my show notes at Top Agents Playbook, you can download Gary's cheat sheet, 25 Keys to Help Exert a Positive Influence on Others. Check it out. It's awesome. Just 25 points, single page. You'll love it. Make sure you check that out, and you'll also find a link to buy Gary's book, Stalling for Time. I couldn't put it down, and it's a totally engaging read. Okay, let's do it. Well, Gary Nessner, welcome to the Top Agents Playbook. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for your time today. I know you're heading down to Florida shortly, so uh, are you missing all this snow? Well, we didn't miss it at all. We got a good bit here in Virginia where I live, and uh, it's uh, warming up a bit, so it's starting to melt, but uh, I would have preferred to miss it all together, but it, it wasn't too bad. Well, um, I went out and bought a snowmobile last week because we had all this gorgeous snow, and I think the day that I bought it, it started raining, so uh, it's yet to be ridden off in yeah, the way. It's like someone buying a snowblower, and then you can guarantee that it won't snow that yep, year. So. Yep, exactly, exactly. Gary, I really enjoyed your book. Your book's called Stalling for Time. It's quite detailed, and you don't really pull any punches. Did you get any blowback from your former employer, the FBI? No, uh there's an agreement that any retired FBI agent uh, has to present the manuscript to FBI headquarters for approval. And knowing um, what is uh, permissible and what's not helped help steer me in the process. Um, basically, an agent is prohibited from disclosing any classified information or right. extraordinarily sensitive techniques. The book didn't either, so as anticipated, there were, there were no recommended changes. Um, one could even be extremely critical of the FBI, which I am in a few chapters, and that's not uh, a, an area where they can even uh, you know, lodge a protest. So in essence, uh, it came back unchanged and um, with their approval to uh, go to publication, and there we went. I want to talk about Waco in a bit, not just yet, but I, I want to get there because, um, because it's the uh, it's probably one of the most famous, or I guess, or infamous uh, seizure experiences that uh, that we can we remember of, of our generation. And um, I know that uh, from from reading your book, certainly the FBI learned a lot. I think that were there like five public inquiries following the uh, following yeah, the seizure of Waco, and, Texas. And a number of um, commissions that examined it, and uh, several congressional hearings, and some of which I testified at, and. Uh, it certainly probably has received as much or more scrutiny as anything else the FBI has ever done. Was was that was that a turning point for uh, FBI education and in instructing uh, their agents? I, I think it was. I think what the FBI realized um, that the mistakes that were made at Waco were not so much uh, that we didn't know what to do, but that we had departed from what we had been doing successfully for a very long time. So the takeaway was that the decision makers um, in the FBI, the field generals, as it were, um, we call them special agents in charge, were not as well educated as, you know, say, the negotiation team. So it really brought about a an enhanced effort on the part of the FBI to let these decision makers um, better understand the capabilities of negotiators and SWAT teams and how they need to be integrated for maximum effect. So that was the, the primary learning point, uh, because when we, we can clearly blame David Koresh for what happened. There's no question about that. Uh -huh. However, that doesn't mean everything the FBI did was right, because some bad decisions were made, and it's that bad decision-making that, that I think uh, effort has been undertaken to correct. Okay. 
I'm interested in this interview naturally because uh, my audience is real estate agents and uh, we're, as a real estate agent, we're always looking to uh, enhance our negotiating skills. Um, to reach your negotiating goals, I guess the I guess it's essential to clarify what the other person wants. The Ohio prison seizure that you, t- you talk about in your book, Stalling for Time, was was pretty messy when you arrived. Can you talk us through how you helped the three groups of prisoners define their objectives and, and why that was important? Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that um, the, the prison population is not necessarily well, well uh, staffed by uh, people who have been successful in communications in life uh, or who have much experience in being organized and, and thoughtful in their approach to problem solving. So with three factions, each um, in a opposition to the other and each holding some of the hostages, our, our task was to really get them organized enough to find out what they want. But more importantly, and, and this goes to, to your question, it's not simply a matter of finding out what people want. It's finding out what do they need. So that particular prison riot was begun by um, a reaction to some um, long pent-up frustrations that were that came to a head when uh, the prison uh, officials uh, d- dictated a uh, an inoculation um, process for tuberculosis, which some of the Muslim inmates objected to. Uh, that sparked a riot, and next thing you know, now we have three factions: uh, a criminal group. Uh, uh, white skinheads, uh, racist, and then we had a, a, a black Muslim group that was sort of racist on the other end of the spectrum, and then we just had a plain old criminal enterprise, and they didn't necessarily get along. So what we really had to do is, after they went through several days of venting their anger and frustration, which most all inmates do in any incarcerated situation about you know not having the freedom to do what they want when they want and not being particularly happy with the rules and regulations established by, by the administration, so once they, they worked through some of those things, now we had to help them um, identify how to solve a problem and to come up independently with a list of things that they felt were important to them and that we could address. And that required helping them understand they had to um, nominate a spokesperson. They had to come up with some clear, articulable uh, issues that were of importance to them, and then they had to sit down and discuss them with us. So you walk them through the process, and um, in this particular instance, it worked quite effectively, and they ended up, surprisingly, uh, coming up with a, a, a fairly um, a pragmatic set of issues that were important to them, and they were more pleading with authorities to examine these points of contention rather than to demanding a specific change. So it really enabled the authorities to uh, honestly be able to say, we will inquire about this inoculation process. We will inquire about, uh, you know, increasing visitation times or, you know, times in the recreation yard, whatever it is. They didn't have to say yes or no to anything. They just said, we will undertake a serious effort to to try to improve these things. And that ultimately left the inmates with a sense of having accomplished something. Yeah. Remember, it, it wasn't specifically what they demanded because they weren't really sure what they wanted. But we had to determine what were their needs. Their needs were to be listened to, to be understood, to feel that they could affect some change. And knowing and appreciating that need enabled us to help devise a strategy that brought us to a a peaceful resolution, although one correctional officer sadly had been killed during the process. But uh, in reality, that was based on a a long-running vendetta vendetta with an inmate that had nothing to do with the, the siege. 
Who who helped them articulate their twenty one points? Well, um, you know, we sort of walked through with them. They they came up with them, and you know, we tried to explain to them how this works. I said, you know, it you know, don't come in with this demand that we all get to jump in a plane and fly to you know Brazil and live happily ever after. Just, you know, keep it realistic and focused. What are the issues that are important to you? What what were you angry about? And and uh, what changes would you like to see? And and then. Um, you know, then we can discuss those with you and see which ones we can address. And I think not only what we said to them, but how we said it with a um, with a sense of sincerity and genuineness that you know we're willing to work with you on this. I think made all the difference in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking with Gary Nessner, former uh, FBI negotiation strategist and chief. I think uh, for more than twenty years, wasn't it, Gary, at the FBI? I was in the FBI 30 years, and yeah, I was a negotiator for um, you know probably to 23, and was the chief of the FBI Crisis Negotiation Unit, the FBI's top negotiator for the for the last 13 years of my career. And you you were involved with uh, with training uh, training new recruits as well, or, or training negotiators? I mean, yeah, the, the, my unit had um, we had 350 FBI negotiators spread around the country that we had operational and training um, policy control over. They didn't work for us day in, day out. And I had a dozen guys that worked for me full time. But what our job was really is to do uh, a training, uh, not only of FBI agents, but police officers domestically and to some extent internationally. Uh, and Canada, Australia, countries like that, we did a lot of work with. And then we also did research. So we would look at, you know, uh, suicide jumpers on a bridge and, you know, how those situations were best resolved. And we would kind of uh, look at that from a psychological and practical point of view and then you know, write papers on it or uh, establish training blocks that we would then share with police around the world so they could um, use use that information to better manage and resolve situations. So it was, a, it was an exciting mix of, uh, of tasks. And, of course, any time the FBI had a major incident, we would go out and, and run the negotiation part. Yeah, I, I, I bet. What a fascinating career. And I was trying to work out with, with the title of your book. And, and by the way, guys, if you haven't, if you haven't read this book, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called Stalling for Time. It's Gary's story, his highlights, and I guess a few lowlights, Gary, as well, of your career. Uh, but the negotiation lessons in this book are, uh, are extraordinary. Well, the, the title actually comes from when I became a negotiator. It was a fairly, uh, almost a brand new specialty within the FBI. And the FBI had sort of borrowed the basic techniques from New York City Police Department where they began. But we, we certainly expanded significantly on their initial concepts and begin to teach it around the nation, which uh, in the United States, the FBI has historically, a little less so these days, but has historically played a key role in providing training to local law enforcement, uh, one of our core missions in the FBI, and also with our liaison around the world. So the concepts that we um, expanded and uh, the trails that we blazed in this area, we became the standard uh, worldwide. Um, But the Looking back at my initial uh, class instructional notes, the first three words on the piece of paper were stall for time. So when I was putting the materials together for the book, um, I thought that was a good title because uh, when we look at the medical profession, you know, the the saying is always first do no harm. And in the negotiation uh, situation, the, the essential basic ingredient is if you do nothing else, slow it down and buy time because... Uh, a vast majority of the situations have a, a very strong emotional component, and people are behaving often in self-destructive, uh, irrational ways, 
against their own self-interest. So our first task is not so much to present them with this brilliant argument as to why they should come out peacefully, but rather to calm their emotion down and to create a relationship of trust. And that's true not only in this business, but basically in any human interaction. So only, only when you've got that person thinking a bit more clearly and not looking, as we say, tunnel vision, there's only one ending to this and it's going to be violent. Now, through the establishment of a relationship, we've got them looking at a broader set of options for resolution. And, you know, and then typically a negotiator would hear a word like, um, you know, when you're talking to the perpetrator or the subject, as we call it in the FBI, they would say, well, I just don't know how to get out of this. And that's posed in the form of a question to the negotiator, and they're basically saying, do you have any ideas for me? Are there any other options? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's an indicator that, that we've, we've created a situation where this person is now open to ideas and thoughts and suggestions that we have, yeah. and that allows us to influence their behavior. I notice an interesting example of time or or how you could feel things escalating and time was running out was the incident um, in the woods in uh, Virginia, I think it was. A man mm-hmm. had uh, had uh, barricaded himself uh, and his wife and child inside a house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was uh, demands for a helicopter uh, and I'll let people read the book um, uh, to, to get more detail on the story, but... Uh, uh, long story short, uh, you came up with a plan to resolve it because uh, that that did involve uh, the potential of deadly force, and you could you could feel things escalating. Did you feel that you had to make a decision at that time? Yeah, I, you know, I mentioned just a short time ago that typically time, uh, well, an overwhelming majority of instances, time works to our benefit. But there are those cases where. Time begins to work against you. The uh, perpetrator has become extremely fatigued. They're losing their patience. They're becoming uh, less in control of, of their rational thought and behavior, and the situation can actually increase in danger. Again, this is not the norm, but it does happen. And when it does, you know, part of the negotiator's job is is not just to stay the course. You have to be adaptable and flexible enough to see that with this particular incident, in order to save a woman and child, we may have to resolve it through a, a different course of action, that the person is unlikely to uh, cooperate and comply and surrender peacefully, that this is going to go down in a, in a, in a more dangerous way. How can we minimize uh, the risk to the victims and, and get it resolved? So it's in the, we call it the tactical role of a negotiator. It's, it's a pretty rare thing where a negotiator makes the recommendation to use deadly force, as I did in that Sperryville incident. That's the first chapter of my book. Yeah. But um, it, it, it does happen from time to time, and, and a negotiator has to understand that um, the, the, the outcomes, particularly if it ends up in a violent outcome, is not because the negotiator did or did not do something. It's because the perpetrator made bad choices and came to a bad decision. We can hope to influence that, and we're almost always successful in doing so, but nothing's 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, and interesting outcome uh, as well. Um, in, in real estate, we talk about with our clients, uh, we talk about trust control. And I was interested in reading your book. In almost each of your hostage and, and siege situations, I noticed that you have to work hard and fast to establish trust uh, with, uh, with uh, I guess I'll call them the Fallon, yet most of the people you're dealing with are conditioned not to trust you. How do you break that barrier down quickly? It is a challenge. Many many of the individuals that we deal with, they, they they have poor family life, poor work experience. They they don't have very effective coping skills for 
the challenges that come up in everyday life, and they tend to overreact and often do so in you know self-destructive and in and, and very dangerous ways. And you're right, they've very often had a prior interaction with law enforcement that that's not positive. So, you know, they expect the police officer to make contact with them if it's on the phone or whatever, which is usually what we like, and and begin to in a typical way, be demanding, you better put your gun down, you better come out, or we're going to get your, your, you know, those sorts of things. And instead, you know, they hear a, a different kind of a voice in the, from a trained negotiator that says, you know, hey, what's what happened? And I'm really concerned for you and your family. Can you can you share with me what, what started all this? So it's less authoritative. It's less critical. It's more open to hearing his side of the story. And from the point viewpoint of a lot of these people, they feel as though no one's ever listened to them before. No one's ever paid them respect. So by doing all those things, we we eventually get to a point where uh, you will typically hear uh, when these guys ultimately surrender, you'll you'll ask them why, and and they'll say that they trusted the negotiator. And when you, in the post-incident interview, ask them, well, what was it that the negotiator said? And the answer is always the same, um, essentially, in different words, but it's always the same. And it's basically, I don't remember what they said, but I like the way they said it. Yeah, interesting. So it's conveying, and this is good for your, 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 your sales clients as well here. I mean, it's conveying um, you know, genuineness, sincerity. Um, nobody likes it when you come across as false and phony, patronizing, or you pretend to know more about the person than you do. You have to, through your communication, you have to earn the right uh, and demonstrate that you have listened by repeating what they say, by identifying the emotions that they're exhibiting that you hear. All of these things are are tools that you can use to demonstrate that you know I, you know I I'm not saying what you're doing is right, but I understand what upset you, and 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 I know this is very important to you, and I know why you're angry at your wife, you know, and and that helps you forge a relationship that then allows you to influence this person to steer away from violence. Yeah. Yeah, showing empathy, I guess, and uh, absolutely. Well, in, in many cases, you're you're literally their their lifeline, uh, li- like you were uh, at Waco, and we'll get to that in a sec. Um, I think one of the big mistakes new real estate people make is losing control and and getting emotional. Just mm. how does the FBI train their agents not to do this? Well, I, it, frankly, with some people, you can't. Um, you know, it's sort of like a bell curve. I mean, I, I think there's. Um, um, there's probably a, a rule of thirds, however you want to say it. I, I think there's, you know, a third of the people, um, FBI agents, who are, are pretty good communicators, and um, they are empathic w- with a certain level of, you know, of, of naturalness. Um, you know, there's a third that that once they get this training and think about it um, a, a little more in a focused way during an incident, they can too become very effective communicators. And frankly, there's about a third of the people that they just don't get it. It's not the way they interact with other humans, and they're not your best negotiators. You know, they just don't have the personalities for it. But I do think that, uh, and that's probably true in real estate too, I, I think if people will stop for a minute and say, you know, I'm, I may learn more by listening to my client than too early in the process pretending to know what I think they want. Yeah, uh, that turns yeah. me off if I'm buying a car or something, and I walk into the uh, lot, and the guy says, "Hey, I know just the car you need," and, and I just almost stop and say, "You have no idea what I need or yeah. want. You, yeah. you haven't don't tell me what you, I want. You haven't talked to me. You haven't listened to me. You don't know who I am. 
don't pretend that you're my friend or you know me. Now, some people fall prey to that sort of thing, but for most of us, you know, it's a turnoff. For, for for an intelligent person. So I think your, your salespeople have to be very careful that they come across and project not only uh, in appearance but in sincerity, you know, I'd, I'd really like to know about more more about what your needs are. Remember, family may ask for things in home that don't really address their needs. You know, what do they need versus what do they want? They're not always the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're listening with this, uh, listening to this, I'm speaking with Gary Nessner, former uh, FBI chief negotiator. Uh, and if you'd like to go to the show notes, you can download Gary's uh, uh, little document there, just a, uh, a list of uh, 25 keys to help exert a positive influence on others. I've had a look through, and it's uh, there's some terrific points there. And uh, I definitely think you should download that. And I think you should definitely check out Gary's book, Stalling for Time. You can buy it at Amazon.com, and the link is on the site. Gary, um, let's talk about let's talk about Waco. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, boy, th- there was so much going on in that chapter of your book, uh, and for you personally, it must have been incre- incredibly hard uh, negotiating with with Koresh and your command at the same time. Um, can you tell me? Uh, can you re- remind us again how long this siege went on for, and and how you how you dealt with dealing with both parties? Well. Uh it was a 52-day siege, and um, it was started by a, 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 what, what most people would characterize as a religious cult, Branch Davidians that lived in a sort of very rural area outside of Waco, Texas. And David Koresh was a, a charismatic uh, sort of controlling cult leader that we've become all too familiar with uh, um, in recent years in various incidents and um, controlled every facet of his people's lives, where they slept, who they slept with, what what they ate, what they did, and his followers were completely devoted to him and, and viewed him as being the son of God. And a part of his theology, which we also frequently see with the religious consult, uh, uh, cults, is based on the book of Revelation, which is the, the part of the Bible, the very controversial part of the Bible that's interpreted broadly by a lot of folks, but it talks about the end times and the conflict between the forces of good and evil. So he taught his followers that, you know, we are not part of the earthly world. We're not beholden to local authorities. And, uh, you know, they're going to come get us someday for this. And, you know, we'll all rise again and so forth and so on. I'm not making slight of it, but it's a very complex topic and we don't have all that time. But um, he came into conflict in that uh, his uh, his group, the Branch Davidians, were... Uh, you know, illegally uh, uh, modifying firearms to make them automatic uh, in contradiction to the laws of the United States. So another federal agency, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, conducted a raid. There was a shootout. Four uh, agents were killed, 17 wounded, and four or five uh, Davidians were killed in the shootout. There was a ceasefire. Now we had to, we the FBI, had to come in and try to peacefully resolve the situation. And in the worst of circumstances, where we already had significant loss of life and injury, um, in essence, and also uh, realizing that the ATF had unwittingly sort of fulfilled his apocalyptic uh, predictions about the authorities coming to get them. So the the Davidians were well-armed and practiced and trained and had weapons and expected this day. They didn't expect it to happen February 28th, 1993, but they did expect it to happen at some point in time. So dealing with David Koresh, who was wounded in the initial shootout, was was a, an extraordinary challenge. And um, um, you know, we were able to convince him to release some children, 
and uh, through the first 26 days, uh, we got 35 people out with a number of up and downs and extraordinary challenges. And I cover that pretty thoroughly in the book for those who are interested. The FBI was getting a lot of external pressure to resolve the situation, and there was a decision made to uh, be a little more firm with the Davidians to exert some increased external pressure to force them out. Uh, very contract contrary to FBI philosophy, by the way. Yeah. But that's what went down. They replaced me as a head negotiator with, with someone that they thought would be more uh, in tune with that approach. And that's the way they went. Not a single additional person came out for the next 26 days. Ultimately, the FBI put in tear gas. The Davidians then set fires to, uh, and, and in essence, committed mass suicide and mm-hmm. significant loss of life and, uh, you know, a terrible tragedy. And the FBI was uh, soundly, uh, roundly criticized for it. And, um, and some of that criticism is quite fair, and, and some of it's not. Um, I think uh, we knew as negotiators um, what to do, and we were proceeding slowly but successfully. And the reports and after action reviews by Congress and so forth pretty much bear that out. But the decision-making by FBI commanders was was faulty, and um, as a result, we've, you know, began to train our commanders on the scene who are the ultimate decision-makers. Under a commander is a SWAT team leader and a negotiation team leader. Uh, but the ultimate decision is made by the on-scene commander, and we realized that we had sort of neglected training these individuals uh, to the level they needed to be in order to appreciate how to use these resources in an appropriate way and achieve the outcome we wanted. Yeah, I, I found it a really interesting chapter on, on and this this part of it in particular. I mean, the outcome is uh, is recorded for history. I think 75 people perished in the, in the fire. Yep. But um, on the one hand, uh, you were negotiating with Koresh and, and his lieutenant, I think his name was Schneider. Yep, um, Steve Schneider. And uh, and you're negotiating with those guys, and and you're using your skills to gently uh, try and advance the process, and um, uh, the 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 three word name uh, trickle is in there. Trickle, trickle flow. flow and gush. Yeah, 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 and that relates to the release of 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 people from the compound. Is that is is that what you mean by that? Yeah, trickle, it's a theory we came up with, and and in essence, um, what what that trickle flow gush flow chart means is that um, we didn't expect to come up with a grand solution, you know, where we would call and say, David, listen to me, you know, in the next hundred words, I'm going to tell you how we make everybody happy and solve this problem. We we knew it, it, we probably weren't going to get to a point where, you know, we had that kind of ending where he said, okay, we're all coming out and we'll all live happily ever after. Our hope rather was that we would begin to convince individual parents inside and other individuals that they should, uh, you know, sort of release their minds from this hypnotic sway he had over them and come back out, take care of their children, some of whom had been released, um, you know, and and go on with their lives. And and we were actually having some success. It's just that that progress was perceived as being a little too slow for some people. I mean, you know, the FBI was spending a million dollars a day, and this was... uh, you know, went on again for 52 days. But again, I was only there the first half. Yeah. So on the one hand, you're, you're trying to speak with Snyder and Koresh to, uh, to, to, to make some progress. On the other hand, 
the uh, your the 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 command center. Now you were eight miles from from the actual compound. These guys were right on the front doorstep. You were kind well, of you were kind yeah, of removed, the weren't you? The team was right there around the building. The, yeah. The command post and the negotiation, uh, what we call the negotiation operations center, were adjacent to each other. But we were we were some several miles, as mentioned, away from the actual site. But the the problem was um, there was a philosophical difference. The negotiators. Uh, for lack of a better term, realized we had to sweet talk these people out, um, you know, be a little flippant there in the terminology. And the tactical people were going to say, well, we're going to force them out. And the, the example I always use is, um, you know, we have a very stubborn animal in America called the mule <laughs> yeah. and uh, well known for its stubbornness. And I said, you know, you may be able to grab the reins of a mule and convince it to follow you to wherever you want to take it. However, if you get behind the mule and try to push the mule in the direction you want, it will never move. And even in that mule's little pea brain, it says if they're trying to push me to it, it must not be good. And therefore, I'm going to resist. And as maybe simplistic as it sounds, people aren't terribly different. Yeah, yeah, the the intuition. The point I was going to make was... uh yeah, you're fighting these these battles. I think at one time they wanted to roll tanks right through the whole compound. Um, they were shutting down the power. Were they blasting music as well? So yeah, all you've of got that's these... laid out in the book. I mean, there was a lot of uh, <laughs> independent, unilateral um, actions taken by some of the tactical folks. Um, a manifestation of their frustration at the slow progress. Yeah, that in many ways undercut what we were trying to do as uh, negotiators. And the, these differences of perspective and assessment were well documented in, you know, in the various reports and, and also innumerable television documentaries and uh, on this topic. I noticed in the bargaining to and fro of, of negotiation, there's, there's often other ways to sweeten the deal to advance your position. And, and at Waco, you search for ways to give to give Koresh and his, his followers a win. Um, and that seemed to me to, uh, I mean, this could have ended much worse. Um, 30, I think, did you say 35 lives were saved? Yeah. Um, and uh, it could have ended a lot worse. Did, did, uh, did, your, did your coach help you with that, your negotiating coach? And, and what is the role of a negotiating well, coach? Well, first of all, it's important to say that, you know, um, I did negotiate directly with Koresh, but only at the very beginning. My, my job is to run the whole team at, at that point in my career. So people tend to think based on watching movies and television that negotiators sort of out there independent. There, there's actually a dozen or more people uh, uh, listening and assessing the conversation and right. helping come up with the strategy for the next. The coach plays a particularly important role because seated adjacent to the negotiator who's talking on the phone is the coach. And the coach is typically the only person that can hand a note to the negotiator. We don't want people to talk to the negotiator to distract them or send differing ideas. A coach might use a what we call a little three-by-five card just to write one or two little words or to uh, make a gesture for the, the primary negotiator. If he hears the negotiator's voice rising too high or he sees some f- uh, frustration, he pass a note or make a suggestion. Is the, the coach call. listening in on the call? Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. There's a lot of people listening in on the call. There's usually most of the team is listening. Okay. Because what we do is after we've had a contact, I mean, the whole idea is not to have our negotiator mentally joust with uh, – you know, with David Koresh, we want, you know, a dozen people to say, well, what did you hear? What did you think? 
And it's amazing how many times another trained negotiator who's not even on the phone will pick up on or have heard something that is really important for us to consider as we plan for the next subsequent call. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's 23 years ago, almost, uh, almost coming up to the day. And I guess history shows that Waco, Texas wasn't the FBI's finest hour. Uh, if you had your time again, uh, Gary, would you do anything different? Not as a negotiator, I wouldn't. If I had, if I had to do it over again, I'd have some better on-scene FBI commanders yeah. who who would have <laughs> listened. And you know, and the proof of that is three years later we handled. Uh, it's also in the book another major siege in Montana with a this time not so much a religious siege, but it was a right-wing anti-government uh, militia. And in this instance, um, the FBI director, now a new director, basically said. We're doing what the negotiators say. And it took 85 days, but we didn't fire a shot. Everybody came out alive. And, of course, it got no news coverage because it was successful. But that's what we want. Um, You know, we we didn't want another Waco that, um, you know, despite the tragedy, uh, you know, the FBI did learn from. But I I do have to say, and uh, it will sound biased as, as someone having been there, while it is important for the FBI to identify, recognize, and correct its mistakes, I think we really have to make sure that everyone understands that David Koresh was really the the person responsible. He and he alone could have marched his people out there any day and was given many, many, many opportunities to do so. And we were very flexible on doing things that would make him comfortable in doing so. But at the end of the day, he had to give up too much. He had to give up his, you know, his uh, his total focus on himself and his needs and his self-deluded sense of being a messiah and so forth so that those were pretty significant obstacles yeah um well maybe he was maybe he was never going to come out who who knows but i uh like, like i say i think it could have ended worse and uh there's so many fascinating stories stories in your book in fact if you're listening to this and, and looking to enhance your negotiating skills, I can't think of a better manual because of the extreme examples and, and the way that Gary m- makes the points. They're, they're so important. There's so much gold in this book. Uh, I can't think of, be- of a better example than, than Gary Nestner's book, uh, Stalling for Time. Gary, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been mm-hmm. a blast. I really in- enjoyed uh, enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, enjoy some lovely warm weather down in Florida. Uh, I look forward to catching up soon. Very good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm Emmy Thies and you've been listening to the Top Agents Playbook Podcast. Mm-hmm.